Would you turn in your Bibles to 1 Timothy chapter 2? Our topic today is prayer and how we should pray, as we'll see in this passage this morning. And I'd like to read it for us as we begin. 1 Timothy 2, verses 1 to 7. Paul writes, I urge then, first of all, that requests, prayers, intercession, and thanksgiving be made for everyone, for kings and all those in authority, that we may live peaceful and quiet lives in all godliness and holiness. This is good and pleases God our Savior, who wants all men to be saved and to come to a knowledge of the truth. For there is one God and one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all men, the testimony given in its proper time. And for this purpose, I was appointed a herald and an apostle. I am telling the truth, I am not lying, and a teacher of the true faith to the Gentiles. Let's pray. Father, you are the one who teaches us about prayer, about the importance of it, the need for it in our life. And we saw that modeled in the life of Jesus, who uh, showed in his own ministry how important that was. The disciples understood that. They saw the power of prayer. And today, as we read this passage of Scripture, we are reminded of it once again. And I pray that the message this morning would really go deep into our hearts, that we might be a people, a church, and individuals who pray. Amen. So why don't we pray more? And why don't we take those risks in prayer of really bringing before God, and in a small group setting like that, or as we have opportunities, those real needs in our life? Why are we so often afraid to do that and instead want to give those kind of cliché prayer requests almost? Or we mention someone else's need rather than ourselves? Again, it's not that those things are wrong for us to pray about, but they shouldn't be the only things that we pray about. In a passage such as this, Paul wants us to broaden our prayers, to pray for the community in which we live, to pray for the world around us and for the advance of the gospel. You see, prayer is to be a priority in the local church. It doesn't surprise me at all that in this letter that Paul wrote to Timothy, which deals with how we are to conduct ourselves in the church, that Paul in the first chapter would talk about the importance of the Word of God, sound doctrine, and in the second chapter he would talk about the priority and necessity of prayer in our life. Those two things go hand in hand, prayer and the Word of God. In fact, healthy churches and healthy Christians are built on the Word of God and prayer. It's like food and drink for us. It's like the air that we breathe. We need it in order to be able to grow in our relationship with Christ. And so any church that tries to function apart from that or any Christian that tries to live apart from a regular habit or diet on the Word of God and prayer is not going to grow strong. In fact, they will fail and pass away. This passage is extremely practical. Practical. Paul gives us instructions on who we should pray for, why we should pray for them, what we should pray for, and even how we should pray as we walk through this passage together. So let's begin looking at those particular questions. Who are we to pray for? 
Well, in verses 1 and 2, Paul tells us that we are to pray for all people and for all rulers. For all people and for all rulers. We are not just to pray for our own needs or the needs of our small circle of friends or the church. We are to pray for our community, our nation, and our world. We're to broaden our horizon as we think about prayer and pray for those who don't know Christ, those who live around us, those that we may bump shoulders with every day, not just the people that are in our small group or our circle of friends. We are to pray for all rulers because they are the ones who, for good or evil, have the most influence in our community and nation and world. God has established government as a way to bring good to society and order in the land. And we are to pray for those who are our rulers in that sense or who serve in that way in our country. I think of in our church, I know that there are several people in our congregation who do work for the government in some capacity. There are people who work for our local city administration, serve on the city council, or serve as mayors in our communities. There are those who work in our schools as members of the administration or our local school board, and they have authority over what goes on in those schools, and we need to pray for them. We have individuals who work in law enforcement to protect us and to keep our streets safe so that we can live our lives in freedom. Those are the kind of individuals that Paul is saying we should be praying for when we meet, in times of public worship, and when we gather in our homes in small groups. We are to pray for them because they have a very important and difficult job. And they need God's wisdom and grace in their lives. But you know, he goes beyond that to say we are also to pray for rulers who are our enemies. That's what's so remarkable about this passage. At the time when Paul wrote, he said we are to pray for kings and all those in authority. And the word that's used there for kings would have referred to the emperor, Nero, as well as to smaller local kings in different parts of the Roman Empire. He is asking the church, when they meet to pray, to pray for Nero, that God would be at work in his life. Nero was one of the most brutal and oppressive emperors who persecuted Christians and who ultimately would order the death of both Peter and Paul. And yet Paul says, we are to pray for them. This isn't like asking a Democrat to pray for a Republican or a Republican to pray for a Democrat in a free country where we can come and gather as we do today. Now, this would be more like living in a country that has an oppressive, brutal dictator and hearing God say that we need to pray for this individual or this person. Why? Well, we, are to, we will see later in this passage, it is because God desires all men to be saved and to come to a knowledge of the truth. And Proverbs 21.1 tells us that the king's heart is in the hand of the Lord, and he directs it like a watercourse wherever he pleases. Even the heart of a pagan king is in the hand of the Lord, and he can change his heart, and he can change the decisions that he makes if we will pray. 
How are we to pray? He tells us we are to pray with all kinds of prayers. In fact, Paul uses four words there in verse 1 to describe our prayer. He tells us that we are to bring our request to God. And the requests express our needs and our desires. We come asking for our daily bread. We come asking for wisdom in our work or job. We come asking for needs of those that we love. And we do bring those health requests and those prayers for one another in that way. Or for safety in our journey and travels. And that's good. But Paul tells us also that we are to bring before him all kinds of prayers. That second word there for prayers is actually the most common one used in the New Testament. And it has this distinctive that our prayers are made to God because these are the things that only God can do or change. Why do we pray? Well, we pray about things that are beyond us that we have no control over. We pray about things that are so big that only God could do them. Not just those physical needs in our own life, but for the tearing down of strongholds and the changing of hearts and for men and women and boys and girls to come to faith in Jesus Christ. We come and we get on our knees before Him because we believe that God is powerful and He hears and answers prayer. Along with that, He tells us that we are to bring our intercession before Him. It's interesting that this word intercession also has kind of a unique twist to it. These are requests that are made on behalf of others. That's what we normally think of with intercession. But these requests are brought by one who is a family member. We are able to pray for others and intercede for them because we belong to the family of God. Because God is our Father. And we have this great privilege then to come in the name of Jesus who has opened up this way and come and bring our requests and can say, Dad... Would you do this on behalf of my friend? Father, would you work in so-and-so's life because of the relationship that we have with him? What an awesome privilege that is. It's why the Scripture so often urges us as believers to come boldly before the throne of grace to make our requests because we have that privilege through Jesus Christ. And we are to also bring our thanksgiving. The Bible tells us that we are to give thanks continually. In all circumstances, on all occasions, we are to give thanks to God for His sovereignty in our life, His grace, His answer to prayer, His provision, all of the things that He does for us. That's how we are to pray. On all occasions, with all kinds of prayers. Paul isn't kind of limiting it to here to any one of these, but he is saying that when we gather in worship, we should pray this way. And when we come as believers in other times where we meet together, whether in our church, it's in an adult Bible fellowship or a small group, or you are gathering in your home with friends, come and pray and bring those needs and requests before God's throne. Well, why are we to pray for all men and all rulers? The answer may seem obvious, but Paul states it here for us. He tells us that we are to pray for them because it is good for our world and it is good for the gospel. In verses 2 through 4. 
He tells us that we are to pray this way so that we may live peaceful and quiet lives in all godliness and holiness. God wants us to live in peace. And those two words that Paul used there for living peaceful and quiet lives refer to both an external peace and an internal peace. The first word talks about living a peaceful life in terms of it being externally peaceful in our world. That we should be able to live in cities and communities where we don't go out with fear. But we feel like we can go out on our streets and we can live in harmony with one another. People get along. There's a sense of cooperation in a community. God wants us to live with that kind of order and peace in our world. But He also wants us to be living quiet lives with peace in our heart because of the change that He's done in us. God wants us to be, there to be peace and order in our world. That's why He gave us law and government for the good of society. It's good for us as individuals, and it is also good for the church. And I know that there are places like China where the church is growing tremendously, remarkably, in spite of persecution and suffering. But do you know this passage is saying that's not God's ideal? That is not the way that He wants us to live in fear or oppression or where we are, are suffering greatly under the hand of those that would oppress us. He wants us to live in a free society. God doesn't want us to live in nations where there's anarchy and lawlessness and chaos either. Can you imagine what it would be like to be a Christian today living in Iraq or living in the Sudan or living in other countries around our world where there is so much uncertainty and fear? How hard it must be for those believers to live their lives in peace and stability and harmony. God wants us to live at peace, to have the freedom to worship and to grow and to serve Him. And He tells us that that peace and stability are good for the Gospel. In verse 3, He tells us, This is good and pleases God our Savior, who wants all men to be saved and to come to a knowledge of the truth. That's God's desire. His desire is for all people to hear the Gospel and to come into a relationship with Him. Sometimes people read this passage and they ask then, if that is God's desire for all people to be saved, then why aren't all people going to be saved? It's one of the mysteries of Scripture that God is absolutely sovereign. God chooses some in election to come into a relationship with Him. And yet He has also given man a freedom, responsibility, and accountability. And how those two things fit together is beyond what we would be able to cover in one message today, but the Bible teaches both. God's absolute sovereignty and man's responsibility and accountability. And somehow those two things fit together so that men will ultimately be without excuse if they choose to reject God and turn away from the Gospel. But the fact that God desires the salvation of all men should give us more than enough reason to pray for them and to reach out and to love them or invite people to follow Jesus Christ. What should we pray for then? 
Well, this passage is telling us we should pray for peace and stability in our world. And we should pray also for the salvation of all people. Have you ever stopped to think that your prayers, our prayers collectively, may be the greatest force for peace in our world? That as the church and as believers join together in prayer, praying for our nation, praying for situations like what is going on in the Middle East or Iraq or Afghanistan or China or for believers in persecuted countries around the world, that our prayers may be the greatest force for peace. In 1989, when the Berlin Wall fell, prayer was a large part of that event. For ten long years prior to 1989, believers in Germany had been gathering on Monday nights to pray. Monday night prayer meetings in churches in that country became common. One of those places where the believers gathered was Nikolai Church in Leipzig. They came to pray and they poured out their heart to God. And they asked for change in their country. They asked that the wall would be torn down. Why did they come and pray to God? Because who else would listen and hear their request? The government wasn't going to listen to them. The Stasi, the secret police in Germany would not listen. But God would. And on the night before the wall came down, thousands of people filled the churches in Leipzig. The prayer service that night was to start at Nikolai Church at 6 o'clock. And the church was filled with 2,000 people at 4 in the afternoon. Can you imagine that? What would move the hearts of people so much to come and to fill a church for a prayer meeting two hours before it was even to begin? It seems far too often when we announce that there's going to be a prayer meeting, it's only a handful that come instead of a whole church that comes and joins in prayer. They met that night, they lifted up their request to God, and after they had sang the final hymn, Donna Nobis Pachem, Lord give us peace, they left that place in a peaceful demonstration. They went out of the church with lit candles. And when they came out on the street and the courtyard around there and the streets outside the church, there were thousands more who met them. And they gathered that day all carrying candles, marching in unison in a peaceful demonstration, asking God to change their land. One of the students who was there that day made this observation. He said, you know, when you carry a candle, you have to use both hands. Otherwise, that flame's going to go out. You use one hand to hold the candle and the other to protect it from the wind as you walk. When you're carrying a candle, you can't be carrying any kind of a weapon. You're not carrying guns or knives or clubs or anything like that. But you're lifting up a candle and you're offering a prayer to God. They came and they marched toward uh, the, the office that housed the secret police in that city. And they laid candles on the steps. They placed candles in front of soldiers who were standing there. And they prayed and asked God to work. And the wall came down. God heard their prayers and changed the heart of a leader, Mikhail Gorbachev, 
And that wall was torn down starting on November 9, 1989. It was interesting that in January of 1989, Eric Honecker, who was the longtime leader of East Germany, declared that the wall would stand for another hundred years. And in October of 89, he resigned. And just a few weeks later, the gates at Nuremberg were open and the wall was torn down. God moved in response to the prayers of his people. And when I think about that physical wall, it causes me to ask the question, what are the walls in our world today that keep people from coming to know Christ? What are the barriers that are out there that need to be overcome in order for people to hear the gospel today as we bring his word to the ends of the earth? And how will those spiritual walls, how will those spiritual strongholds be torn down? It's only by the power of prayer. Paul urges us to pray for the salvation of all people. And there are many ways that we can do that. I mean, that is exactly why Christ came. That's what this passage tells us. That we are to pray for the salvation of all people because there is only one God. And there's only one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus, the God-man, who gave himself as a ransom for all men, who paid the penalty, the price that we deserved because of our sins to suffer, and he paid that penalty so that we could be redeemed or set free. There's no other way. There's no plan B. There's no other option by which men and women can be saved. It is only through Jesus Christ. He's the bridge over which we must cross. And so we pray that people might come to a right knowledge of the truth. When I think about the ways that we can pray, uh, we can pray both specifically and generally in these different areas. We can pray specifically for neighbors and friends and family members that we know, and we can pray for them by name. In fact, a good practice is to keep kind of a list of five or ten people that you may be praying for consistently, that they would come to know Christ as Savior and lift up their names before God regularly, consistently. But you can also pray in a general way for your neighborhood or school, by doing what are called prayer walks. Maybe you uh, regularly walk in your neighborhood. Or maybe you uh, are aware of some of the needs of families who live around you. And you could simply, as you are getting your exercise or going for a walk in your neighborhood, you could pray for them. I do that when I run and when I walk in our neighborhood. Lately, I've been over at the fitness center at the school and sometimes I run the halls and I pray for the students and faculty and administration as I'm going around that building. And I pray that God would work on our schools in a powerful way and in the lives of those students that are there. And I pray that God would use the teachers and students who know Christ to be a witness for Him. Three times a week, I'm over there running and praying. We can pray specifically or generally for missionaries and what's going on in other countries 
We need to pray for those that we have sent out from our church. I think of Carrie in Thailand or Bob and Esther in Botswana or Ross and Jane with OM or Paul and Kathy in Germany and I could go on and on. And we need to pray and lift up those individuals who are serving Christ in other countries and in the United States as well that God would give them power and grace and open doors for the gospel. But we can also pray generally for the world using a book like Operation World, which lists specific requests on uh, different nations of the world, or we can come before God on our knees looking at a globe or a world map, and we can pray for situations that we are aware of. You can pray when you're watching the news. You can pray when you're reading a newspaper for events that are taking place. And I love it on KTIS when they hear of things that are emergency needs, that they stop and take time to pray. God wants us to be a people who pray because when we pray, God works. Prayer is powerful. It's like the heavy artillery in battle. It can penetrate any heart. It can tear down any stronghold. It can affect any country in the world. There are no borders or walls that can stop it. Prayer can change the course of a nation and it can change the course of an individual life if God so wills. That's why we pray. So how important is prayer in your life? How much time do you devote to prayer? Who and what are you praying for? And if you were to practice what the Scripture teaches here, how would it change the way you pray? I'd like you to give some thought to those questions today and to think about that and ask God what it is that He would want you to do in response to this message on prayer. Let's pray. Father, we thank You for Your Word this morning. And it's not always easy for us to do this. I know that it's a battle to pray. I know that sometimes we just feel like so many other things are attractive or pull at our time and attention. Father, we need to make prayer a priority in our life. Would you help us to do that? To grow in our conviction and our practice. To be a people who come before you on our knees in a large group setting or as we come to worship you and who also come before you in our private times at home, in our quiet times with you. Lord, teach us how to pray. Amen.